On this edition of Larry the Golf Guy, we have a very special guest, Fred Perpall, who is the recently elected 67th president of the United States Golf Association. Um, Fred is um, really an amazing guy to talk to, as I think you'll see if, as you listen to this. Um, he grew up in uh, the Bahamas, um, knew at an early age he wanted to become an architect. Uh, we talk about all that in his journey to the U.S. to study architecture, where he got both a bachelor's and master's at the University of Texas at Arlington and has spent most of his business career with the Beck Group, which is an uh, international architecture and construction company, and he's been the CEO for the last 10 years. But in terms of golf, it's very interesting. He came to the game um, later than most folks who end up ascending to the USGA Executive Committee and Presidency. And we talk about that and how he got interested in it. And uh, he was definitely bitten with the bug, as you'll hear, um, and um, became involved with the USGA uh, four years ago, uh, joining the Executive Committee in early 2019. Um, he was instrumental before then in setting up Trinity Forest, a uh, wonderful new club, relatively new club in the Dallas area. And we talk about that. But um, then we get into a number of um, items with the USGA. Um, he was on the championship committee uh, for a few years before sending to the presidency. We talk about the adaptive open, the anchor sites for the U.S. Opens, uh, the um, uh, you know significant enhancements have been made to the U.S. Women's Open, um, and the um, great stuff that's going on this year with the U.S. Open coming back to L.A. for the first time in 75 years, the partnership that the USGA is doing with LACC um, and the SCGA about uh, raising money for the Maggie Hathaway Public Facility. We cover all that, and we even get into the... Um, uh, new model, uh, or I should say the proposed model local rule for the um, shortened golf ball for elite players um, at the end of um, the podcast. So we cover a lot of ground. Um, as I said, I, Fred is um, great to talk with, um, really compelling. I think you'll, you'll easily see that as you listen to this. So um, up next on Larry the Golf Guy, Fred Purpall, USGA president. Well, welcome to uh, another edition of Larry the Golf Guy, and we have a very special guest today, um, which I'm thrilled about, is Fred Purpall, who is the newly elected 67th president of the USGA. Um, and Fred, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, speak with us this morning. Larry, good to be here and uh, look forward to a productive time. Yeah, for sure. So just to get it rolling and maybe give people a little bit of um, background about you, um, you know, you grew up in Nassau, Bahamas. And um, one of the things I thought was interesting and maybe you could just chat about is you uh, kind of decided at a relatively young age what you were going to do, which, which is be an architect, which, of course, you've had a very successful career at. Maybe I think is interesting. Your summer job, as I understood, sort of led to that. Maybe you could tell folks how that went. Yeah, Larry, I grew up in uh, in Nassau. We grew up in a neighborhood called Chippingham, which is kind of like, uh, you know, just a regular working class, you know, urban community. Um, I had the good fortune of having, you know, a really hardworking mom and a hardworking dad. And uh, my uncle, my father's brother was a mason. So he actually laid bricks and blocks for a living. And by 12 years old, I was about six foot four. And wow. <laughs> just sort of lounging around the house. And my dad uh, thought that manual labor would be a good way to spend summer. And so um, I got to go to work with my brother, uh, with my uncle, and we mixed cement and mortar and spent our whole summer working in the tropical sun. And, you know, that kind of started my fascination with buildings. But I also instinctively knew pretty quickly that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life working in the tropical sun doing manual labor. So sure. I think my dad was pretty, uh, pretty smart to send us on that job. But I did, for the first time, recognize what an architect did. And the architect got to have the vision, got to come out, supervise everyone, and uh, jump back in his nice car and leave us to do all the work manually. <laughs> 
And I thought <laughs> at 12 years old, I thought uh, being an architect was a much better way to interact with buildings. Um, so I've had the good fortune of from a very young age, knowing that I wanted to be involved in the design and in the construction business. And I've had the good fortune to pursue that dream uh, for my entire life and also my entire career. That's awesome. And I know if I understand there was sort of a group of golfers in the Bahamas from a club that sort of helped invest in the lives of young people. And that played a role in, in your, um, in your growing up as well, as I understand it. Right. Yeah, Larry, there was, uh, you know, growing up, my, uh, my mom was a cook. Um, she, uh, never completed high school, but was just the most, um, amazing woman in that, you know, food was her passion and she had her own little cafeteria, but in, um, you know, in the late eighties, uh, when, uh, the economy was not doing so well, um, she lost her cafeteria and, uh, mm. went to work at the Lifer Key Club as the breakfast and lunch cook. Mm. And, uh, I, I still remember, you know, uh, her getting picked up. There was a bus stop. This club was very far in those days from our home in the inner city. And uh, she got bussed out to the club every um, day to work uh, as a cook. And these members, you know, who loved golf and many of them were, you know, international, um, you know, part-time residents in, in the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but they thought that all that goodness they were experiencing behind the gates of Life for Key that, some of that goodness ought to be shared outside of the gates. Wonderful. And they set up a little scholarship to help kids in disadvantaged communities go to college. And my mom found out about this uh, scholarship fund. And, you know, Larry, I was one of those kids who had the good fortune of, you know, being blessed with a scholarship. Uh, that scholarship paid for all my room and board for six years of college. Wow. And I think uh, I like to say long before I was a golfer, golf was already changing my life. And uh, it's been one of the things that's been really you know, inspirational to me about the game of golf. When we yeah. come together, when we come together as golfers, because we are making a commitment to really spend our lives together, so much good can be done and is being done through this game. And so it's a it's a wonderful story. And it's a story that, you know, it's personal and it's it's real for my life. Absolutely. That's wonderful. And, and that's so true. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what's going on with the LAO, uh, with, with LACC and the Maggie Hathaway stuff, which is yet another great example of that. We'll get, we'll get to that because I'm a little involved with that from the SCGA angle, but just to sort of continue the timeline quickly. So you go to the college of Bahamas, I think you got your associate degree in architecture, and then you end up getting to the U S and getting to university of Texas at Arlington. Of course, you're Still in Texas, still in Dallas. So, uh, how did how did you end up sort of choosing that that's where you were going to go in the U.S. for education? Yeah, you know our 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 environment growing up, we lived in a pretty rough and tumble neighborhood. Uh, you know, it, it, I wouldn't say it was dangerous, but it was borderline dangerous. Many of the kids I grew up with never really made it out of that neighborhood. But my my parents used two uh, devices uh, to kind of keep us on the right track. One we were a big church family. Like we went to church, you know, several times a week. My, my mother was uh, in the choir. My father served on the altar. We were, we were Anglican, which in this country is Episcopal. And uh, so we spent a lot of time in church and then we spent a lot of time with sports. I played almost any sport you can imagine. I played um, growing up. And of course in the Bahamas track and field and basketball are very prevalent. So by the end of high school, I was a pretty, you know, standout athlete in both. And I went to University of the Bahamas mm -hmm. as a basketball player and track athlete and spent two years playing basketball there and studying architecture. And, you know, I had this wild imagination that I would pursue a career in architecture while, you know, trying to make it to the NBA and had the good fortune to be able to go to UT Arlington and walk onto the basketball team. Because at wow. that time, no one was really recruiting. Um, and I like to say it this way. Pretty early in my career at UTA, I found out like, okay, I wasn't going to make a living playing basketball. <laughs> and so that was actually a gift, you know, to to be able to, you know, experience Division One basketball, but to know that that was not going to be my path. And uh, it allowed me to focus on architecture and really become a serious student. And uh, But it was architecture and basketball that brought me to UT Arlington. But it was architecture that actually became my thing. And I had the good fortune of finishing at the top of my class. 
Oh, wonderful. Earning an academic scholarship and instead of an athletic scholarship and going to graduate school there, combined with the scholarship from Life for Key, those were the two devices on how I got through college. And you know, I like to tell that story because so often, particularly with young kids of color, we think that sports is our only way out. Right. Uh, but the truth is, you know, I think if you apply yourself, if you network well, and if you're good with people, there are many ways out. And so sports was probably the thing that uh, kept me on the path to go to college. But once I got to college, understanding that there were many different paths I could take. Uh, and uh, the NCAA has this slogan I love that uh, most of our student athletes are going professional in something else. <laughs> so Yeah, that is a guy. I hadn't heard that. That is great. Yeah. I like that. So, yeah, I did go professional, but not in basketball. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that's wonderful. And you certainly did go professional in a non-sport thing. I mean, just, we won't, I, I want to get to the golf, so we won't spend a lot of time, but, you know, just for our listeners, I mean, you've spent most of your career with the Beck Group, you know, which is a significant uh, international architecture construction company. Uh, you know, you've um, become the CEO of it, um, just a stellar business career, big presence in the business community in Dallas. But I want to sort of circle around to golf because, um, you know, as you were talking about, even though golf directly touched your life through the life and key folks, you didn't take up golf until kind of a little bit later in life. And I'd be interested to sort of just hear kind of how you first got introduced to the game. Yeah, no, I love to tell the story because I think similar to life, there are many paths, right? I mean, I recognize being the 67th president of the USGA that Probably the most unique part of um, my presidency is I came to golf as an adult. I did not, right. like many of our presidents, I did not grow up playing golf. Um, you know, my first exposure to golf was probably in my mid-20s uh, when in the construction business, we had so many charity golf tournaments that you just get invited to. So once or twice a year, I'd go hack around in the name of charity. But truly in my 20s, I didn't have the time nor the, you know, economic you know, vibrancy to play golf, you know, uh, all of my access. I remember at that time trying to go to driving ranges in Dallas and you'd have to drive like an hour out of town because there was just no place you could play in town that was right. really accessible and open. And so, you know, I was very, I was not really drawn to it in my twenties, even though I was exposed to it because, just because of the difficulty to play. And at that time I was still playing a lot of basketball and basketball, you could, drive around the corner and, you know, all you needed was gym shoes and a basketball and a right. $30, $30 a month membership. But as I got older and I couldn't play basketball at that level and also my career had taken off a little, my family and I got back to Dallas from Atlanta. We joined a club, the Northwood Club in 2013. Okay. And I would sit in the 19th hole as a social member and I'd see all the members, you know, playing golf all day, uh, particularly on the weekends and having so much fun. And I just thought, like, okay, now I really do have the access. Maybe I should go learn to play a little golf. And you all know, I think all your listeners will know, the first time you hit a driver square on the face, yeah, the exhilaration that goes yeah. through your body. And if that either that lights something up in you or it doesn't. But right. if it does, uh, you know you're sort of hooked for life. And so I I I became pretty much a uh, you know golf addict um, you know, 10 years ago. And I started off, you know, I had this nice little slogan because I'm really into branding. And at Beck, we do a lot with the communication. So I sort of made my own golf journal and uh, I titled that journal, The Road to Scratch. And nice. uh, I was determined, I was determined once I picked up golf that I would become a scratch player. And that was my ambition. And I set pretty steep objectives around it. I got a coach right at the beginning and I learned, I started to learn to play golf. And uh, I think it's been a gift, you know, for me really over this journey because a couple of things also happened. One, we got an assignment at Beck to build a, a golf club with a group of business leaders in Dallas called Trinity Forest. And at that time, our ambition was to bring the Byron Nelson back into Dallas proper. Right. Here it was my professional life as a design builder was giving me the opportunity to interact with, you know, very, you know, golf savvy crowd to help build and create this club. We moved all around the United States looking at the best golf courses and the best golf clubs and what that entailed. 
So it, that really spoke to like my professional fascination with building things and designing things. Sure. I started uh, on the weekend just buying golf books. I would have them delivered by the tens. You know, everything you could read about Alistair McKenzie and Donald yeah. Ross. Yeah. Building house and what made their architecture great. And it turns out that golf architecture really mirrors all of the attributes of good design that you find in building architecture, sight lines, scale, proportion, rhythm, um, you know, sort of camouflage, procession, all of these terms that we use in golf architecture, I had already learned in architecture school. And so that really appealed to me, the quality of how you build things. And I just really got really fascinated in the, you know, what I would call the design side of architecture. And it became a big passion and it also inspired me to learn to play more golf. And so I started buying uh, anything I could get my hand on in terms of golf instruction and also golf architecture. And, uh, you know, it's been a wonderful gift to, to actually go into the journey of golf from both sides, not only uh, learning to play, but also this responsibility to help create a uh, a great golf club and a great golf course to bring the Byron Nelson back. So those two things were going alive in my life at the same time. Part of it was recreational. Part of it was professional. Um, and as you know, um, if you de- if you dive into golf that way, all of a sudden your golf buddies become your best friends on earth. Right. And, um, and you know, so that's kind of how my journey got started a little bit over 10 years ago. Very cool. And just, I mean, we have a few mutual friends that belong to Trinity Forest. And so I know a little bit about the course. Haven't seen it read i've read about it seen the picture so you had core and crenshaw i think right were the ones yes. who were involved with that so just speaking of architecture i mean there's you know one of the most well-respected and most successful modern teams so particularly with your background and your you know budding passion for the golf architecture aspect of the game that must have been very cool interacting with those guys i bet yeah no doubt and i you know like one of my really good friends in dallas jonas woods was our sort of leader on the project and he is, uh, to say the least, he's sort of a golf wonk. And so I was learning from him. He was taking me along because we were challenged to build all of the structures. And so just getting the front row seat to watch his interaction with Ben and Bill, to watch their interaction with each other, to think about how, you know, the strategy on creating a place. In this, in this view, we had four ambitions. One, we wanted to create a golf course that could host a world-class championship and host the Byron Nelson too. We wanted to create a home for uh, for SMU's golf team and right. to bring the team back into Dallas. You know, three, we wanted to build a first tee site. So the kids in, in the neighborhood, and this was, you know, a very blighted community that those kids growing up in a disadvantaged um, circumstance could have exposure to us and to golf and learn more about life through golf and we did build a first tee site and center and then four we wanted to make the course available for dallas charities so we could raise money and give back to the city through golf and you know so all of a sudden the very thing that i experienced as a 16 17 year old through the members at life for key i was having an opportunity as a member to help shape and that is the beauty in golf right like you know one of the things we love about 18 holes of golf is the procession and that procession is almost like a metaphor for life that yeah. we start off on hole one and we go through this journey and we experience different changes. And as we learn, we learn how fast are the greens. We learn, ooh, the this grass, you have to chip this way. You have you can right. put off the green. We learn all these things through the procession and the journey of around, just like we learn through life. And if we're smart and intuitive, we connect the dots. And so for me, my experience in golf started to come full circle in 2014 and 15, as we were working to make this project a reality, it was really mirroring a lot of the experience I had as a kid growing up in a, you know, disadvantaged community. And so, you know, what a gift. Absolutely. That is well said. You know, and the other thing is just going through my mind, listening to you talk about Trinity Forest and Dallas is what a, I mean, Dallas has always has a rich history in golf. Of course, we can go back to, you know, Byron Nelson and Ben Hogan and, and, um, but you now have the, the PGA headquarters, you know, moved there from Florida, a little north of the city. And, and so 
Um, and of course, you know, you've got Scotty Scheffler, Jordan Speed. I mean, it's really kind of a mecca for golf these days, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, it's, what's funny, Larry, is a lot of my friends have said to me, man, how do you feel? You know, you're, you're sort of like the first black president of USGA. And I think, look, I, I've always prided myself, like one of trying to live a life that is a life leaning in. Yeah. And I have not defined my life based on the color of my skin, nor do I think anyone benefits from defining their life based on the color of their skin. But I am proud of what that means, you know, for kids of color, that they could look at the president of USGA and know that there's anything they could do in golf. Absolutely. Uh, and I know what that feels like because I looked at Tiger Woods and felt like there, there was room in the game for me because he existed. So I know the power of visuals. Yeah. I'm also proud to be the first Texan to be the president of the Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and, and when you think about the history of golf in Texas, right, whether it's Hogan and Nelson, and you can go down the list, but just the wonderful players that come from Texas, North Texas in particular, I'm very proud of. We got Scotty Scheffler and Will Zaltoris and Speeth yeah. and yeah. Justin Leonard before you can go on and on. Right. And so um, it, it does feel like, you know, quite a you know privilege and it's very humbling to think about all that this state has given golf. And uh, finally, now, you know, that we have a USGA president that that feels pretty cool. It, I have no doubt. So let's get into the USGA. So um, I, I know you joined the executive committee, I think, in 2019. Um, maybe how did you first get connected with the USGA? Yeah, so I. Trinity Forest, we had this wild ambition, not knowing, you know, sometimes, you know, irrational confidence is really good. We had this wild ambition <laughs> that we could build a course that was so great that we could inspire the USGA to bring a U.S. Open back to Texas. Okay. And so part of our mission all along was that we we would, um, you know, try to conduct a U.S. Open at Trinity Forest. And so through that, you know, we got to know um, a lot of the folks at the USGA. One of our founding members, Bob Dedman, is also the owner and chairman of Pinehurst. And mm -hmm. he has a very deep relationship with USGA. We also had an executive committee member at the time, Mar Malcolm Holland, um, who also was a founding member. So we had this really rich history amongst our founding members with the USGA. And we were lobbying on them hard to think about bringing a U.S. Open back to Dallas. Yeah. And that didn't work. But through that process, Bob introduced me to Mike Davis. And uh, we had a couple of good conversations about the experience we were having and the objectives of the course and the club. And then my role in particular and, and the passion I had around the game and being a fairly newcomer, you know, what I was experiencing. And I think Mike, uh, Mike felt like that was a very relevant um, skill set relative to what the executive committee needed, you know, golf savviness, yeah, but also savviness around, you know, uh, golf course site selection, right. um, athletics in particular, because at Beck we design and build a lot of sports facilities for other sports. And I got the opportunity in 2019 to interview for the executive committee. Subsequently, was very humbled and honored to be selected, and uh, I got. Uh, put on the championship committee in year one and then became the chairman of the championship committee. So that, that, that's kind of my experience. And again, back to the procession and the journey yeah. of playing golf, all of a sudden the journey of my life started to come full circle. Those summers, you know, digging in the dirt and laying blocks, um, you know, made me really passionate about everything under the ground on a golf course that you can't see that absolutely affects how we conduct championships, the quality of how we construct things, the quality of how we maintain things, all those things started to come full life. Like my work work and my passion work started to become one through the championship committee and, and my ability to contribute. So that's kind of a little bit of my journey with the USGA and how, how it came to be. But I also believe Larry, that you kind of attract the life you want. Yeah. And I have never gotten into golf for what, golf can give me i got into golf for what i could give to others through golf including you know um you know relationships and i think as we all know when you lean in you sort of get more than you gave and uh, absolutely I, i'm way beyond my dreams in golf right now okay <laughs> i think it's awesome about it and so i wanted i i knew you were on the championship committee and you know there's been some 
I mean, obviously an important committee, lots of stuff going on and talking about, you know, giving back and sort of connecting with stuff. I mean, one of the things, and you must have had a significant hand in this, just given when you were on the committee and what's happened is the first adaptive open, you know, was last year. And that just, you know, we've had a number of guests who have been involved um, with uh, that aspect of golf out in Southern California, um, you know, with getting golf in the Special Olympics and various things. But very cool to see the USGA do that. And again, I from just looking at the distance, that seemed like it was a tremendous success last summer. Yeah, I mean, you know, much credit ought to go to John Bodenheimer and the championship staff. Um, Mike Davis, our previous CEO. Mike Wan, our current CEO. Um, Bob Dedman at Pinehurst um, for hosting. You know, I think one of the things that we feel as a responsibility as a USGA is to think about golf long term. You know, so much of why I think the USGA is subject to criticism um, you know, it's just the nature of America and the nature of the world today is short-termism. So if we yeah. only think about what's good next year and what's good five years from now, then we might arrive at certain decisions. But if we think about what's good 50 years from now, then our whole decision tree may be different. And the USGA, we try to wake up thinking about golf 50 years from now. And we want that game to look like the United States. We want the game of golf to truly look like our country. Yeah. We want people of all backgrounds and all means and all genders and all ability types to feel like they could actually, you know, create a better life and become a better person through golf. Yeah. It's all spiritual. Yeah. We want this game to be more inclusive, not because, you know, we have some bleeding heart, but we, we think as the United States Golf Association, what makes the United States power powerful is our ability to include everyone. And so it is a high form of equity and inclusion to think about an adaptive open so that folks of all abilities have a role and can see themselves in the game. And I'm very proud of what we've done to elevate inclusion through the adaptive open. I'm also yeah. very proud of what we did on the championship committee to elevate the women's game, to increase our purse at the U.S. Women's Open to put the U.S. Women's Open on the exact same venerable sites that the U.S. Men's Open is held on, to say to all those little girls that they will be treated with the same kind of, you know, respect and regard uh, that we treat the boys and the men with, because that is who America is, and that is Absolutely. who we are at our best. And I can say, like, nothing makes me more fired up about golf than what golf can do for you. And uh, and so, you know, when we include more people, this entire game gets better. And the adaptive open was a big you know, step forward in terms of inclusion. All very well said. I agree with all that. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned the Women's Open because um, that is so neat and noticeable. And I would I would go on and say overdue. Uh, to sort of see the U.S. Women's Open going to the same stellar sites that, you know, the Men's Open. We had Amy Alcott on a few months ago, who, of course, is very connected with Riviera, which is, you know, part of what's uh, one of the places, stellar places the Women's Open is going to be going to. You're a pebble uh, in a couple of months. Obviously, that speaks for itself. Um, so, and you've got the purse raised. I mean, that was... Um, I'm just curious what sort of, I, I mean, it's great that it happened. Was there anything particular that led to that or just, just sort of people kind of said, you know, we really need to just do this because it's great that it happened. Yeah. I think that at the USGA, we always like one of the things we're always trying to do is get better. And when I joined the committee in 2019, we were already on the way thinking about of our 14 championships a annually, what would be the 15th. And so if you think about this as a way of continuous improvement, we believe we have par excellence in our championship staff that we part of the reason the USJ was established two main reasons. One to govern the game through setting the rules and the conditions by which people play and two to conduct championships, to inspire people at every level to play golf. Mm -hmm. And so those are the two core reasons for being for the USGA. So championships have always been um, the inspirational side of the USGA. And I think every strategic plan we'd sit and think what would be the next championship yeah and you could see people saying oh we should have a mixed doubles championship you know <laughs> we should have a mixed four balls or whatever um but we just felt like 
at this time in our history um, in terms of inclusion because we have equal amount of women in men's championship that yeah. one other way to include people would be those um, with different physical abilities. And so um, that was just a part of our overall st strategic plan. And I think you should, you should look forward to us continuing to think about how else can we inspire people and who, who else can we include? And we'll continue to add championships if, if they help us with our main strategy which is to inspire more people and to include more people through championships. Beautiful. It makes sense. Let me touch on one other thing about championships. So the U S open, the men's U S open, um, you've sort of, uh, the USGA has sort of gravitated towards having a number of anchor sites for U S opens. Um, you know, some of the real cathedrals of the game, um, and you've got them kind of committed pretty far out into the future. Um, you know, Places like Miriam, I think, have got some close to 2050 as well as, of course, sooner than that. So what's the thinking uh, behind the anchor site concept? Yeah, I mean, I think the anchor sites, uh, you know, for us at the USJ, it's really interesting because before I got on the executive committee, it's really easy to think that, you know, it's, you know, the way we select our championship sites, not only for the U.S. Open, U.S. Women's Open, but for all of our championships, uh, that it's just like any other business deal. It's relationship. Uh, it's knee jerk. Uh, it's flavor of the month. But I could tell you nothing could be further from the truth. At our championship strategy, we think about it as a pyramid. And at the very top of that pyramid is the player and the player experience and the player yeah. journey. And we listen to our players. One of our colleagues on the ex executive committee and championship committee, Nick Price, yeah, said, uh, you know, one of my first championship committee meetings that it's really important where players win their U.S. Open. Right. And so we went and talked to the players and, and we thought um, along with them, you know, wh where would they want to win their U.S. Opens? And it turns out there were six to eight that just emerged above all others. Uh -huh. I think you would agree that part of building a strong you know, sort of strategy of any kind is not only to know what you're going to do, but to know what you're not going to do. Yeah. And we had this feeling that we could go deeper and elevate the championships by investing more deeply in fewer places. Yeah. So that we can have more consistency, so that we can drive more quality, so that our team and the team at the site and the club could get better we also felt like we could unlock a lot of value with the clubs by giving them more consistency and certainty as to when we would come and when we would come back so that they could make deeper commitments and longer term right. decisions. One of the more abusive things of the USJ of the past would be, I call it like the circus coming to town. We would come in, <laughs> we, would have a good week. we would all love each other. We would walk out of there and you, let's say you're at LACC, you say, man, that was a great week. When are you going to come back and lose it? We don't know. Right. And then that uncertainty and that lack of clarity just drives chaos in itself. So we think clarity creates confidence. And when we, when you're clear about our intentions and when we are clear about our intentions, we have more confidence in making deeper invest, investments for the longer term, yeah. which elevates the site, elevates the championship, and ultimately put the players on the best stages. Part of that confidence also is when you know we are going to conduct two or three championships at your site, it gives you more confidence to host other things for us, right? like, like hosting the Women's Open, because you know right. you're doing the work to host a man. So this was a part of a very coordinated plan um, that I had a you know front seat to, but really right. led the championship staff at the USGA to actually achieve more by going fewer places. And I know the criticism that comes from those that might feel boxed out, but I also feel like we have so many deeper yeses for those clubs that may not host a U.S. Open in the near future. There are right. other things that they can host with us. And so we want to say, yes, we love you as a host site. No, you may not get a U.S. Open in the next 10 years, but yes, we can do all these other things together.
And so part of that, um, you know, for us is making sure that we keep the main thing, the main thing, which is the player's experience, the player's journey, and putting our best players on the cathedral sites in the game. That That's awesome. And, and in terms of this year, um, you know, one of the sites you're going to, uh, which is a new site for the for the for at least for the men's open the walker cup is there a few years ago which is lacc and everyone is so excited to have the u.s open back in la it's 75 years since hogan won at riviera um and um uh and and you know picking up on your point about not merely being the circus that comes to town and then leaves i think it's really neat and people will find out i'm sure more about this as we get closer to the date about the partnering you're doing with LACC and and the SCGA for this Maggie Hathaway public facility, which is in a kind of challenging part of town and, and junior golf programming. Maybe you could talk about that. And I don't know if you're thinking this giving back to the local community, which is awesome, might be something that is a more regular part of, you know, the USGA and the US Open going forward. But it certainly is this year. And I think it's really neat. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be, you know, so like, I, I'm sure at some point you'll say, well, what's your focus? Yeah, you, that's, that's my next you, question. As USGA president, so I'm just going to, I'm going to preempt your Yeah, go ahead. I think, I think this is part of the focus, right? Like, first off, and I want to be real respectful here, I'm deeply humbled to have been chosen to play the role of president. It's not mindful to me that the best leadership is a relay race. It's not an individual event. I stand on the shoulders of every executive committee member, every volunteer, every president that came before me. And my job is to just carry the baton as the leader of the board and the executive committee for the three years I'm challenged to have that baton. So this is not a singular event as to what Fred wants to do. This is what we want to do. And the fact that I am president is a reflection of the values of the people that came before me, including my predecessor, Stu Francis. But when we think about Maggie Hathaway, which is an opportunity to go into the inner city of Los Angeles and restore a course that would primarily be used by folks in disadvantaged um, communities, many of whom are black and brown, it's an opportunity to connect back into a life arc and a story, you know, journey for me, yeah. Which is which is to use the game of golf to improve people's life and to give them a better line of sight as to what their life could be like because of who they get to interact with. And that was certainly what golf has done for me. And we think at the USGA, part of the benefit that should come when the USGA comes to town is that there is something that is permanent that should be left, that should be good for that community. And one of the indictments that I think is unfair about golf, but we have not done enough to change, is that it is just a bunch of elitists and exclusive people who play golf, who yeah. have no interest in the people outside of the game. And you and I both know nothing could be further from the truth, that yeah. the people I have met in golf has absolutely been some of the most splendid people in our community who are open, who are charitable, and who absolutely invest in the lives of the people around them. But we're in a world today where I think we need to demonstrate more than we need to explain. Yeah. And when we go into a community like Compton and take all of the vibrancy of the USGA of Los Angeles Country Club, and we invest our dollars and we invest our time and we invest our expertise to restore a course and to endow programs and to actually show up physically to be with the people in that community. We are demonstrating to them our commitment to them and to the community. And that's the goodness that exists in my view. And for years, we've been asking the community to come to the game of golf. Right. And it is now time to take the game of golf to the community, to meet people where they're at, to actually not ask them to leave their neighborhood, 
and be uncomfortable, it is time for us to get a little uncomfortable and go to them. And this is the opportunity we all have, not only the USGA, but the entire game of golf has. Imagine if every elite club and every great club in every city just took one club, one program, five kids. Imagine the impact we can have in this country. Yeah. And so we think at the USGA, it is time to demonstrate what that looks like, to work along with our partners and our host sites, to use our time, our treasure, and our resources. And when you care about it, it becomes personal. Yeah. It's not something you outsource. It's something you go and do yourself. And so I'm excited about Maggie Hathaway, but I'm excited about all of the other programs like this we're working on to truly demonstrate that those of us that love golf also love our community and we're willing to make it personal. And that's what's so cool about Maggie Hathaway. When you have it, you don't have to explain it because you're just living it. And uh, it's going to be, I think, a pretty special thing to leave this amenity, this asset of goodness for the community so that long after the U.S. Open is played, goodness is still being created in that community through golf. That's wonderful. I, I totally, totally agree with that. And as I say, you know, the SCGA is is part of that partnering with the LAC, with LACC and the USGA. And I know from the Junior Golf Foundation people at um, SCG, I mean, I know, you know, the SCG folks, I mean, they're very active in it and very excited about well, it. They, I, I think, think they, by and large, I think they have been the main leaders. And look, that's the other part in golf. There's so many fragmented organizations, but when we come together, like when the SCGA comes along with the USGA, comes along with LACC, comes along with the, Southern California Black Golfers Associate. When all right. when everyone comes together and throws in, throws their lot in together, so much more can be done. And look, that's part of what we're trying to do today. I think we're at a banner, um, you know, sort of in terms of how we all feel about each other across these organizations, and we can achieve more when we all combine our resources and combine our skills you know, to create better outcomes for not only those who play golf today, but those who will play golf in the future. Absolutely. And um, anything else in terms of, as you think, I'll, I know there's been lots of developments. Mike Wands covered them beautifully in terms of the ball stuff and the national development program. I don't know if there's more to say. I mean, I think he's done, I mean, you guys are a great team. I mean, you know, talk about two guys, you know, branding and, you know, and great public speakers with you and him, but um that seems to have sort of, you know, I, I I know it's a proposed stuff with the ball and and we'll see how that all unfolds. But I think that's just part of you guys being stewards of the game and kind of to your point, looking ahead 20 years and keeping all of these courses relevant. A lot of stuff goes into that. But, um, yeah. you know, that's a significant development and we'll see how that unfolds. But I yeah, thought I mean, it was rolled out well. Yeah, I love, a couple of things. One, I think the USGA and RNA um, together have been – um, a good team. I think I cannot not think about uh, a better working relationship between the two organizations than we have now. I, I'm yeah. sure it's always been strong, but I would say it's peak it's peak strength now. I think Martin Slumbers at the RNA is a world class leader, and I believe in Mike Wan. We have one of the best leaders I've ever been around. Yeah. Um, and you know, so for me, um, a good part of leadership um, is listening. And that's what we're doing right now. We're taking input. But another important part of leadership is courage to do what's right. Yeah. And when we think about distance, it's not about distance. You know, it's about sustainability. Right. It's about inclusion. It's about literally the ability to economically include people in this game. Yeah. We have spent a generation fitting golf courses to the game of golf. We literally have indicated to people that they must buy their neighbors' homes, tear down lots, right. consume more resources to actually fit the golf course to the game. Right. So as players get better and stronger, and we don't blame them for that, that's what you should do as an athlete. As equipment gets more effective, and we don't blame them either, right. that's what they should do as, as businesses and as innovators we then have to say, what is the appropriate response for that? We could build bigger golf courses that consume more and more resources and take more and more money 
to build more and more length and tee boxes that fewer and fewer people will ever play. And we can embed 30 to 40% more expense in the cost of operating golf courses, which means fewer and fewer people can afford to play. Or we can say to the elite male player, who is the person requiring all this length, that there probably ought to be different equipment standards for you. And I do not accept the fact that we are bifurcating the game. The game of golf has been bifurcated physically a long time ago. Yeah. At Trinity Forest, we have tee boxes that no member ever plays. Right. We are seven to 10 professional players play those tee boxes and the other 325 of us pay for them. Right. Spend fewer and fewer time together. I played in the AT&T Pro-Am. 20% of the time I was not with my pro because he was walking back 80, 90 yards. Right, right. So when we talk about unifying the game, one could argue that this equipment strategy does not separate us. It actually has the potential to bring us back together. That my pro is playing closer tees to me. When you get better at basketball, they move the three-point line back. Right. When you get better at football and you go from one high school to college, you get a heavier football. Right. When you go from college baseball, you leave that aluminum bat and they give you a wood bat. Right. Because you are better. Right. Because you are a professional. Because you play at a level no one else can play at. And so we have to think about what is best for all golfers, not just what is best for the thousand professional men that play golf. And I know that is an unpopular take. Uh, I happen to belong to a club that has one of the world's greatest golfers. I, I belong to another club where I see top 20 golfers in the world regularly. I have to right. walk them on the range and I have to eat my tortilla <laughs> soup. <sitting next> to <laughs> I love the way they play golf. Sure. I'm inspired to play better golf because of them. But I'm also mindful that the way and the level they play golf is not the way and the level I play golf. And what is good for them and what is good for me is probably different. And so this is about inclusion. This is about our ability to truly unify the game physically. This is about equity. And this is about the responsibility that I think we all have to think about what should golf be like 50 years from now. And 10,000-yard golf courses will not be good for golf. 800-yard par fives will not be good for golf. Gobbling up our neighbors and consuming more resources and using more water, particularly on the West Coast, right. will not be good for golf. Turning golf into the NBA slam dunk competition where it's only about hitting drives and making putts is not good for golf. Golf is a beautiful game. It's an elegant game. It tests your ability across the entire golf bag. And we think at the USGA that all of those elements that have made golf great through the centuries ought to be retained in the game. And so players should learn to hit five irons into greens and four irons into green and to work the ball left and right and to avoid uh, bunkers and to place the courses the way they've been designed, to know when to lay up, to have appropriate risk and reward. Hitting a golf ball past all of that uh, doesn't allow the beauty of the game to come out. And so um, I'm willing to sit down with anyone. Mike Wan has done a beautiful job, as is Martin Slumbers, articulating the issue. We're listening um, and we're willing to learn. But I also feel like we think 50 years from now, the attributes that made golf great should still exist. And we shouldn't be putting our thumbs on, you know, Rembrandts only to accommodate, you know, 500 players. So I, I, that's really well said. I 100 percent agree. And, 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 you know, and it keeps those cathedrals that you're going to relevant without having to sort of, you know, bend them in ways that they weren't meant to be bent in terms of distance and stuff as well. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that's esoterical. I've had players look me right in the face and say, you're only doing this for 10 golf courses. You know, you're doing this to keep. Yeah, but that's not true. Pick, yeah, Pick a place. You're yeah. doing this to keep these 10 courses in play. 
And I think that is a nearsighted view. Yes, I agree. The, the view I mentioned relative to the embedding of all of this co cost and the embedding of all of these resources, the way we spend time, what could kill golf is the amount of time that golf takes. Yes. We make golf courses bigger and bigger. We're making rounds longer and longer. We're making them less and less sustainable. These are not things that are good for the overall game of golf, even if it suits the needs of 500 to 1,000 people that play professional golf. Look, at, at the last 40 years, according to the National Golf Foundation, recreational golf has been by far the number one economic recreational sport in the United States. And number two has not been close. Yeah. Recreational golf generates $80 billion worth of economic impact. 40 million people play golf today in the United States. We have, we have a vibrancy in the amateur and recreational game that puts it at the very top of all recreational sports. We have to think about the 25 to 30 million people that play golf and what is good for them so that that 30 becomes 40, becomes 50 over time. We can't only think about what's best for the 500 elite male right. professional golf golfers. And I know that sounds, you know, very myopic in their mind. They say, well, maybe we should have our own rules. Well, they're free to do whatever's best for them. But I think the USGA and the RNA, uh, along with our other leaders in golf, we try to wake up every day thinking about what's best for all of golf. And so we want golf to be more sustainable, more inclusive, more equitable, and more unified. And this is what our project is around. It's not around penalizing golfers who can hit the ball far. It's about how do we create the most comprehensive and sustainable game going forward. Absolutely. And and sustainability is particularly important out here, as you alluded to the West Coast. Fred, I know you, um, you're you traveling and um, uh, I want to, uh, so I'll, I'll wrap it up by saying I want to thank you. I know how busy you are uh, and for giving us the time um, was fantastic. I really enjoyed chatting with you and uh, I'm very excited as a golfer, as a passionate golfer, with you at the presidency and Mike Wan, you know, as the CEO, I mean, I think these are going to be some exciting times with that great leadership at the USGA. So thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Well, Larry, thank you for everything you have done and continue to do to keep golf strong. I want to thank all your listeners for their engagement. And I want to thank you for giving me um, the platform today. And I, I want you to know that, you know, as good as this game is, you know, it's the people that you meet through this game that makes it so special. And uh, I want to thank you for, you know, all that you do to keep it special. So thank Great. you. Thank you, Fred. I appreciate it.